Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you um, so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, updates from the 2023 American Society of Hematology, or ASH, annual meeting. And today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and a contribution from Lilly, and we really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, um, we have a lot of you on the call today. There's over 350 participants on the call, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, South Korea, and the United Kingdom. So really, it's a global call as well, and uh, it's a credit to each of you that you're spending the next hour with us um, to learn more about the presentations at ASH. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of myeloproliferative neoplasm program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor while Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing an overview of blood cancers in the context of COVID, seasonal flu and RSC, and disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on leukemia. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Oh, thanks, Carolyn, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, I am fresh off the plane, as they say, from our American Society for Hematology meeting, and no complaints. It was, uh, it was far away from where I am in New York, um, but um, this is about as rapid an update as you can get. Um, but first, as we all know, uh, besides being the season of American Society for Hematology, it's also the season to be sitting under the mistletoe, to be lighting the menorah, to be celebrating Kwanzaa, and any other holidays, which might be in December or special days. But it's also cold, flu, and unfortunately, COVID season. So I'm here just to start off by saying, what does the CDC tell us? And I believe that the CDC has consistently been a, uh, a valid, uh, evidence-based, and sane voice for us in the United States. And I know this is always a personal decision, so I defer to everyone to make their own choices. But in case you didn't know it, Everyone is eligible and should receive an influenza vaccine. Everyone six months of age and older. There are various types of flu vaccines, and they're available. And that's just a very significant seasonal virus which can cause you know, symptoms, and they can be severe uh, depending on the person. Um, and we all benefit each other by getting vaccination because by generating herd immunity and keeping flu from spreading around, we all limit the, the spread and the severity and, the, and unfortunately, the, the danger of influenza. Okay, so that's flu. What about COVID? COVID-19, we've all lived through a very terrible time on Earth, but it's not gone. And I think many of us have, are starting to look past it, and we shouldn't. So if you look at what the CDC recommends for COVID, there's a lovely um, picture-based diagram telling you what have you gotten previously, if you've gotten something, even if you haven't had anything, and what might they recommend in 2023? And in general, the young, the old, and everybody in between should be eligible for a, an additional vaccine, essentially a booster. But I would say that since it's been a year since most people have been vaccinated, it's really like getting revaccinated. 
because the strain has changed and the vaccination has been adapted to, to better cover the COVID-19 variations that are out and likely to cause someone to get sick. We all know, unfortunately, how severe COVID is. I think the best way to describe this is some people have directly been hit and, and may have had a very severe case or even have lost a loved one. Nearly everybody knows someone who has had COVID or has had you know, some experience with COVID. It's rare to have someone that has no exposure to COVID or no, no um, sense of it. So <clears throat> just like influenza, we beho- it behooves us all to get vaccinated. And there's strong support and safety. I know that's been a big issue. And of course, there's politics. But let's try to put that aside and think about the science and think about our health and also about each other. If, even if you don't get vaccinated in the cold and flu season, take cover. Don't cough into your hands. Good hand hygiene. If you're ill, please don't visit with vulnerable family members or if you must cover, even wear a mask. And don't be afraid to wear a mask, everyone. In the medical profession, it's like pants or shirts. Masks are very, you know, they're, they're, they're easy. We, we, we like them. We wear them. And they're not a statement. They're not a negative thing. They're simply trying to help our, our fellow man and woman and child on earth um, from getting sick. So go ahead and do so. Lastly, RSV. I have the least to say about that because I think if you look at guidelines for that, it's recommended for a more limited population. I think we have available vaccines, but RSV is for those over 60 and in whom an informed decision uh, or an, uh, a shared decision-making can be had with the patient. Essentially, if you have certain health conditions or you might have greater risk of complications from RSV. And the main people at risk are, are uh, the older population over 60 with health conditions, actually the very young. But there's also some specific recommendations around women who are pregnant and those with very small children where RSV could be quite serious. So if you're in that population or you have those kinds of family members, talk to your doctor and find out. I don't think everyone has to race out and assume they need an RSV vaccine, especially if you're under 60 and especially if there aren't any very young people in your circle. All right. So what about ASH and leukemia? I'm a CML physician by my my preference, so I'm going to start with that. Um, We have had a revolution in CML, and we have a variety of targeted therapies. But at ASH 2023, we did see an update in one of our newest drugs called Asiminib. Asiminib is a different type of small molecule or, you know, it's chemotherapy, but it's Really not. It's a targeted drug. It's a, it is a chemical, so we call it chemotherapy, and it's a cancer drug, so it's chemotherapy, but it's an oral targeted agent with a very low side effect profile, which is highly efficient in treating leukemia. It's already been studied and FDA approved for patients who have had two or more medicines, who have a certain mutation, and have chronic myeloid leukemia and chronic or accelerated disease. Um, but in, at ASH 2023, we saw some updates on how well might this drug work if we had used it right when someone was diagnosed. And the results were very encouraging. In short, we're seeing people get into remission faster, getting into deeper remissions with very minimal side effects, very manageable. Um, and we saw, and this was from uh, David Young from Adelaide, Australia. Australia as an island does terrific work in leukemia, and I applaud my colleagues there. Um, and their study is leading the path for us. Um, I think what we're seeing is probably it may be better than our original drug Gleevec, although that's not confirmed. And mind you, Gleevec is very good, um, but Disseminib may be better. And it may be better than some of our other medications we might use at diagnosis with a very good safety profile. A, a very large study we'll read out next year that was sponsored by the manufacturer, Novartis, um, in this space. So stay tuned. What else about Disseminib? Um, there were updates on how we can use it in combination, which is always a new area. Um, can you use a medication with another 
uh, one of its colleagues together, that's usually not an automatic yes. And now with Assimilib, we have the ability to use our older CML medications like amantinib, nilantinib, and desantinib. Um, and those are Bristol-Myers-Squibb and Novartis compounds uh, with Assimilib. Um, and the combination data that was presented by Jorge Cortez, he and I worked on this project together, and many investigators around the world um, showed that the drugs were safe to combine, we know what doses we can use, and we have to explore further because it's a nice, good efficacy signal. Um, and, and we're able to separate where the side effects are coming from if they are, which are mild. Lastly, we saw some uh, information about how CML sometimes can get tricky with regards to resistance. And I think we're getting a lot smarter on figuring out how we might be able to sort out whose CML might be a little bit trickier, might, might need different therapies, might need certain combinations, and might need more surveillance to make sure that their blood doesn't have additional mutations, which is an area we're getting quite good at uh, understanding. Let me turn um, next to acute leukemias because I don't want to take up too much time. Um, but suffice it to say that CML is doing quite well. I want to turn next to acute myeloid leukemia. And I think if you didn't know it at ASH, there was something called late-breaking abstracts. So we all wait around until Tuesday morning, the end of the meetings, for colleagues that might have had a very big and very exciting trial, or maybe even just a good trial, which was working hard to get their data in. And the meeting organizer said, if you, if you have good information, get it to us by this, last, this later deadline. And if it's good enough, we want to hear about it. We want to present it to the public. And it was, a, it was a leukemia abstract that I think really um, fits the bill that was in the late-breaking abstract. It was number five. And it was, a, it was using a drug called um, Revlumenib, uh, which, sorry if I'm hacking the pronunciation, um, which is a targeted drug for acute myeloid leukemia. The, the exciting thing about this drug was this was a targeted drug for a certain type of AML or ALL. Really, actually, let me just say acute leukemia that harbors a specific genetic mutation. So this is another targeted drug. There, there is a gene um, called the MLL gene, or KMT2, which is a very powerful region of the genome, which encodes for a lot of different things in blood cells that regulate development and regulation. So if you can imagine if you had a rearrangement of that gene or a fusion of that gene, that would not be good. And unfortunately, we see sometimes things that cut across all barriers, children, adults, even AML and ALL, which are distinct diseases. But sometimes one gene can really unfortunately be um, associated with multiple different leukemias. So the, the counterpoint to that was that this trial was for multiple different types of leukemias and was for children, adults, and everybody in between. There were, it, was, it was a trial open to people who were 30 days old. So that, that means infants that could be a month old, heaven forbid, that had leukemia. Of this type, um, all the way up to adults, the median age was, uh, the range of ages was 1 to 75. So it was a pediatric and adult trial, this targeted drug, for patients whose leukemia hadn't responded to chemotherapy or maybe had returned after transplant. And it, it was very remarkable that it, it was um, effective in a clear subset of patients. It was able to put them back into a hematologic remission, sometimes different levels of remission. It was able to get people enough to control of their leukemia to move on to a bone marrow transplant. And it was, um, it was quite safe. It really, uh, a nice thing to say is that one of the side effects was that the leukemia cells actually grew up and differentiated rather than just causing problems. That's, that's the, the, the new era we're in, in leukemia, that we don't, we don't just have to kill the cancer cell. We can actually kind of reprogram it to grow up, and then it will die off as it should. Um, but, but that is a side effect. It can be a problem, but it's manageable. That and some other mild side effects. There are, of course, side effects in treating acute leukemia like low blood counts and fever that also came. 
But I think this is incredibly encouraging. It was really a sign that we're getting so much smarter about our leukemia treatment that we can cut across um, patients of different types and different um, leukemias with a common genetic um, abnormality and use a targeted drug which shows great promise. And this is not the only drug in this class. There are several drugs in this um, MLL rearranged leukemia or um, NPM1 rearranged leukemia um, class. Um, so stay tuned for even more exciting information um, and that type of cancer treatment. I'll close quickly with one abstract back to my, um, one of my areas of passion, which is the targeted therapies for the Philadelphia chromosome positive leukemias. And in ALL, there was an update of what I would call a non-chemotherapy approach for treating ALL and Philadelphia chromosome positive lymphoid blast crisis CML. So, so this is, again, a, a more serious form of leukemia or an acute leukemia that has the same genetic change as people with chronic myeloid leukemia, the Philadelphia chromosome. So we use our targeted drug. Do you remember a few minutes ago I said Asiminib is the first TKI that you can combine with another drug? So Dr. Luskin from Dana-Farber and colleagues in other cancer centers is starting to use that combination approach using Asiminib and Dasantinib, um, which are, are, is a very active drug in um, CML and ALL, uh, both, um, with prednisone, which is a steroid as an induction regimen or a primary treatment for ALL and PH chromosome positive lymphoid blast crisis. And I think they've worked out the dose, and it's the dose of Asiminib that we use in, in chronic phase CML, which is very good to hear, and the safety is very good, and I think they're showing that the majority of patients are getting good remissions with this combination, and this is a very well-tolerated regimen. They're targeting patients who may not be able to take chemotherapy, they may be older, and, and again, another um, good and or terrific use of our technology and our advances to better treat leukemia. I'm going to stop there and pass the baton back to my colleagues, and thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really an outstanding presentation, and actually you did set this tone for today's program. Very inspirational, and a lot of wonderful data that you presented, which I think, um, you know, we can't see everybody's faces, but certainly it, I'm sure it's lit up a lot of people's faces to think that these are all these new treatments are available. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Nilanjan Ghosh. And Dr. Ghosh is the Carrie and Simon Zicker Family Foundation Endowed Chair, Chair, Department of Hematology, of Hematologic Oncology and Blood Disorders, Chief Lymphoma Division, Levine Cancer Institute, Atrium Health, Charlotte, North Carolina, Clinical Professor of, Me of Internal Medicine, Wake Forest University School of Medicine. And Dr. Ghosh will be addressing um, disease-specific treatment updates from ASH on lymphoma, and the role of precision medicine and clinical trials. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ghosh. Thank you so much, Caroline. Um, I'm also fresh out of ASH, and I'm going to intertwine uh, precision treatment uh, in clinical trials focusing on lymphoma. Uh, so the general theme has been precision treatment and immunotherapies. So that includes um, specifically bispecific antibodies, CAR T-cell therapy, as well as targeted agents. And um, overall, as we have seen, uh, the activity of these agents in the relapse and refractory settings, there were many studies which helped to move these either in earlier lines of therapy 
or in the frontline setting. So the general theme in lymphoma has been trying to either limit or move away from chemotherapy and focus on immunotherapy and targeted agents. In some cases, incorporating these with chemotherapy. So I'll uh, uh, discuss diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the commonest lymphoma and, ag and an aggressive disease, follicular lymphoma, which is an indolent lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma. And I'll highlight a few advances uh, and presentations uh, uh, as, we, as we go through this. Uh, so the first one is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We know that this is a, a highly curable disease, but is an aggressive one and there is still an unmet need because what we want to do in this disease is try and cure as many people as possible in the frontline setting so that they never have to get treatment again. But for those who are not able to achieve that, we want to be able to get, uh, you know, uh, still curative options in second line and beyond. So what we have seen is that uh, a type of uh, immunotherapy called bispecific antibodies, these have really good activity in the relapsed refractory setting. And what they do is they bind to an antigen called CD20, which is present on B cells, and CD3, which is present on T cells, and help to bring the patient's own T cells to help fight the, the, the lymphoma cells, which have the CD20 on them. So uh, kind of trying to harness their own immune system to fight against the lymphoma. And we have several of these uh, bispecific antibodies which, um, which, uh, which are approved in the U.S. Uh, in the relapsed refractory setting, at least two, um, which are uh, glofidumab and epcoridumab. And knowing that these have very good activities in the relapsed refractory setting, investigators presented data but they combine this with a frontline chemotherapy uh, regimen, which, uh, you, uh, which uh, most people are familiar with, known as RCHOP, uh, and uh, see if they can, uh, you know, have really good activity in the frontline setting. So uh, a group at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering presented data for high-risk patients. So what the, how they define high-risk is they follow circulating tumor DNA. And for those patients who do not have a significant decrease in this tumor, uh, circulating tumor DNA, after one cycle of RCHOP, they're considered to be high risk. And they gave this regimen of glufidumab plus RCHOP to those patients and saw high complete response rates and high overall response rates, again showing that this is a promising uh, combination and also demonstrated uh, safety in this population. Another multi-center approach uh, looked at combining uh, glufidumab plus RCHOP in the frontline setting. We were part of that uh, effort and, again, showed very high overall response rates and high complete response rates. Uh, uh, then focusing on the elderly population with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the frontline setting, and the other bispecific antibody, which I mentioned, epcoritumab, was combined with our mini-CHOP. Mini-CHOP because the doses are roughly about half of what we use in CHOP uh, chemotherapy. And, uh, you know, again, treated a small number of patients, about 28 patients, but again saw, uh, you know, patients who got high um, uh, response rates, high complete, uh, uh, high overall response rates, and high complete response rate as well uh, in this population. And even in the elderly population, showed uh, good, uh, good, uh, a, a relatively good toxicity profile. And then there was another 
really uh, intriguing uh, approach of completely a chemo-free approach in the frontline setting because there are elderly patients who may not be able to get any of these chemotherapy agents because of certain comorbidities or cardiac conditions. And there, uh, there, there, was a, uh, there was a study which combined another bispecific antibody called mosanotuzumab with uh, antibody drug conjugate called polatuzumab. And when they combined these two, these two drugs in over 100 patients, who are either elderly, and that is 80 years or above, or who are between 65 to 79, but ineligible for full-dose chemotherapy because of geriatric assessment tool, which uh, showed that they had uh, some elements of frailty. Uh, it again showed uh, a high overall response rate and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and complete responses were also seen, and it was, uh, it was also deemed to be safe Although there were uh, COVID-19 pneumonias which were seen, uh, some of these trials were done at the peak of the COVID pandemic. Uh, and uh, so they were seen, uh, but you know, overall it demonstrated uh, a, a chemo-free frontline regimen, and we'll need more time to see you know, how the depth of the remission uh, lasts in these, in these patients. And then uh, another attempt at chemo-free uh, 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 you know, or perhaps limited chemo, I should say. Uh, it was done by the colleagues at MD Anderson. They looked at this regimen called Smart Stop. As the name suggests, what they did is they combined a number of these targeted agents. Uh, one was lenalidomide. Uh, another one is tafacitimab. Uh, combined it with rituximab, which is a monoclonal antibody to CD, uh, CD20, tafacitimab, which is a monoclonal antibody to CD19, and a calibrotinib, which is a BTK uh, inhibitor. And they combined these four novel targeted uh, agents. Some, are, some you would consider as immunomodulatory agents. Others would be more like immunotherapy or targeted agents. And they gave these, and then they, they tried to see after that what kind of responses patients had. And if they had a good response, they got very limited doses of CHOP chemotherapy. And if they didn't have a great response, then they got more doses of CHOP therapy. And so they individualized. So that's, again, going back to this whole precision approach. They didn't give all commerce, everybody the same thing. They individualized. And what they saw was really remarkable. Uh, you know, the, um, they got, saw very high uh, response rates. Um, nearly everybody responded. And um, in the, even though the follow-up is short, nobody had relapsed. Uh, with this approach, so uh, again, uh, these were these were the themes in, in, in newly diagnosed in relapsed refractory uh, diffuse large cell lymphoma. We saw longer follow-up from glofidumab, uh, 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 which is the bispecific antibody I earlier talked about. Uh, this has been approved in the U.S. What we saw is that patients who had achieved a complete remission, a large number of those patients are maintaining their complete remission while they are off treatment. So this was, again, reassuring because what we are trying to find out is, um, you know, the longer time they are in remission, it might give a hint of people who could have a chance of being cured. We don't know that yet, but, you know, we are uh, following them year after year now that they are off treatment, to see even in the relapsed refractory setting, are there, uh, is there a tail at the end of the curve, meaning are there patients who would not need any further treatment to have their disease uh, in remission. And uh, we saw some of that in the data which was presented. 
we also saw combinations of lefitimab with uh, with um, by, uh, with a antibody drug conjugate called polatuzumab and then with the other bispecific antibody epcoritimab we saw some really nice data when it was combined with the immunomodulatory agent lenalidomide even had this had very good activity even in patients who have failed car t cell therapy and things like that same with glufidumab uh, it also showed very good activity in patients who had failed car t cell therapy there was another a uh, combination which uh, which which looked very promising we participated in that study as well uh, and it was a combination of mosanatuzumab plus polatuzumab it showed very high response rates and uh, and complete responses as well in patients who had previously failed other treatments for diffuse lead cell lymphoma including car t cell therapy and uh, it's also a very promising combination and is well tolerated uh, as well we know that with these bispecific antibodies one of the problems is a cytokine release syndrome and there were efforts which were done to mitigate the cytokine release syndrome and also to try and differentiate cytokine release syndrome from um, bispecific antibodies to cytokine release syndrome from uh, from car t cell therapy so there were two presentations one with epcoritumab the other one with glufidumab where dexamethasone was used as a premedication to mitigate the cytokine release syndrome and those were very very interesting and good approaches uh, because the idea is to try and maximize the benefit and minimize the toxicity so that these bispecific antibodies can be widely available beyond uh, you know just the centers which we do where, they, where we do transplant and car t cell to more in the community so that these are really accessible to a larger number of patients than they currently are so that is really the goal very briefly uh, talking about follicular lymphoma uh, we uh, heard about some completely chemo free approaches in the frontline setting with this uh, bispecific antibody mosanatuzumab which is currently already approved in the relapsed refractory and has now uh, been is now being tested in the frontline setting both in low tumor burden and high tumor burden disease again with high response rates and low toxicity and more to come as 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 we get longer follow up for these but it was really amazing to see uh, a completely chemo free single agent uh, bispecific antibody getting such high responses in follicular lymphoma these agents also have very good activity in the relapsed refractory setting we also saw for the first time a car t cell product lysocaptogen merolucel in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma again having very high complete responses and a manageable toxicity in the relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma space finally i'll end with mantle cell lymphoma there were two very important uh, presentations in my mind uh, there were many others which we are not going to be able to include because of uh, because of time limitations however i want to uh, point out the combination of this mosanatuzumab and polatuzumab which i already spoke about in relapsed refractory dlbcl but also in mantle cell lymphoma again uh, you know showing that a bispecific antibody plus antibody drug conjugate again trying to go away from traditional chemo showed high response rate even in heavily pretreated patients and and really got very high complete response rate and has been safe finally uh, you know as 
uh, Dr. Morrow already presented, that a few presentations do get selected for late-breaking abstract, and uh, and uh, and you know one which was there was the second presentation in the late-breaking session was a targeted agent called brutinib, a BTK inhibitor, with another targeted agent called zanitoplex, um, and this was com uh, compared to brutinib plus placebo. And what it showed by adding the zanitoplex. Um, there was a significant improvement in outcomes, including response rate and, uh, you know, progression-free survival uh, with patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. And this was a large randomized trial, so it showed, you know, this advantage. And then the, the, this, uh, you know, the, the, not only was the efficacy, the toxicity was also manageable. There were, again, COVID-19 um, uh, uh, infections, uh, but they, they were equal in both the arms. Uh, so um, I think this is a significant advancement. We participated in this study as well, and this was really good to see that uh, the data was strikingly uh, positive. So again, uh, thank you for um, for inviting me, and I'll ha I'll be happy to take questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ghosh. That was really really outstanding and very inspiring and enthusiastic presentations, and also the late breaking posters that you've mentioned. Um, they clearly um, have played a very important role in the presentations today, and, um, and I think our participants really appreciate that. So thank you so very much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, but outstanding presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Matthew Butler. Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio. And Dr. Butler will be addressing disease-specific updates on multiple myeloma and talking with the healthcare team about your treatment options, including telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's my great pleasure now to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, these uh, uh, updates, well, these meetings uh, that, that we go to are uh, overwhelming with just the sheer amount of research, the number of different um, studies and abstracts being presented. Um, it, it's really hard to kind of grapple with it all and try to, to squeeze it and get something out of it in a four or five day meeting. Then we turn around and try to summarize it for, for this audience in a few minutes. And it's, it, the temptation is just to talk about as many different things as possible and hope that that, uh, that some of them um, are useful. Um, but I'll try to focus on the things that I think really make a difference. And, and in the news in myeloma is, it, it's not a, a, a breakthrough or a new therapy, but it's some things that have been coming together for, for several years that are really starting to gel. And the first one is um, how effective the CD38-directed monoclonal antibodies are. We have two of these, daratumumab or Darzalax and Isatuximab or Sarcleza. Um, the, the, the kind of uh, late-breaking, you know, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, this week as well, um, news was uh, about a, a large uh, study in untreated, so the very first treatment for myeloma using uh, daratumumab in combination with VRD, which is a, a, a kind of long-standing regimen. Um, we've already known that, that this was probably uh, improved uh, overall outcomes, um, you know, long, more 
patients responding and, and staying in remission for longer if we give them this additional drug. Now we have a much larger, higher quality phase three study that really proves this. And so I think this has kind of moved th this regimen from something we might consider doing in certain patients to something that we really should think seriously about in most patients, at least patients that are uh, you know, relatively young and, and relatively healthy when they get myeloma. Um, and there's a slightly smaller study that looked at the other CD38 antibody, ethotuximab, and showed roughly similar results that, you know, adding these, these immunotherapies to our existing drugs um, does lead to better outcomes. Deeper, we talk, in myeloma, we talk about the depth of response, meaning how hard we look to see some myeloma cells uh, left behind and still don't see them. Um, so the, the, the buzzword is MRD or minimal residual disease. Um, and that basically just means that rather than just have a pathologist look with their eye through a microscope, uh, which can detect maybe about one cell in a hundred um, that somebody's going to notice this, as they scroll through a microscope slide. We have molecular tests that can detect one cell in 10,000, or in some cases even one cell in 100,000. Um, and so, if we, so that's how we, we, we evaluate uh, our, our treatments nowadays is, you know, do we get to that really deep response where we can't find uh, the, the disease left even though we look very hard? And, um, and th these, these studies uh, of, of both daratumumab and ethotuximab um, show really encouraging results that way. Uh, incidentally, the reason we do that, we have to use that measure is um, survival is not a very, it, it's very hard to measure in myeloma because people are doing so well across the board. Um, that's a good problem to have, and, and MRD is one of the workarounds that we have for that. Um, in people who have already had treatment for myeloma and need more treatment because they've progressed or relapsed, um, we also know that these are powerful drugs, and we're, we're looking at different things to combine them with. Combining daratumumab with carfilzomib um, is a highly effective regimen, and combining ezituximab with carfilzomib. Uh, there, were, there were studies presented for both of those combinations, and again, broadly similar results, but they compare very favorably to older regimens that, that have been in use. So, um, so those are the kind of, you know, large studies that, were, that are, ch you know, changing practice and, and pushing us, you know, further to, to using these drugs um, more and using them earlier. Um, the, the more exotic treatments for myeloma that, you may, that we've, I've talked about before on these calls uh, are the cellular-based therapies and the bispecific antibody therapies. These are just two different um, ways of, uh, co you know, working with your own immune system to get it to attack the disease. Um, and uh, the, the study, you know, information, research has been accumulating for both of these approaches for a while. Um, I, I think everyone agrees that uh, the cellular therapies work a little bit better, but they're also more difficult to get and to go through. Um, and the bispecific antibody therapies work almost as well, and they're, they're more accessible and a little easier. So there's a, some trade-offs there, and it's, it's a really you know, nuanced decision about which one of these avenues to pursue. 
Um, but the, the, the interesting thing to me is we've, we've known for several years that we can use uh, cellular therapies, CAR-T therapy is the buzzword, um, in, in patients who are really far along that have had multiple other, in the, at least three prior treatments and had none of those work or at least none of those last uh, and, and, and you know, continuing to relapse, then we start thinking about cellular therapies. That's how they're approved. But uh, a new study with using um, Silta Cell, which is one of the CAR-T products, the brand name is Carvicti, um, is looking at doing uh, uh, CAR-T sooner. So after someone who's had as few as one prior treatments or as many as three, um, in other words, someone that we would ordinarily just be, you know, mixing and matching our different drugs for and, you know, trying again, trying different combinations, uh, hoping for better results, they're starting to be interested, well, why, why wait? If we know CAR-T is a great treatment, why not try it sooner? Um, and uh, and there's, there's, uh, that study is ongoing, but there is new data reported at ASH that, that really is encouraging and that may push us toward uh, that approach. Now, it's, it's still not approved that way. CAR-T treatments are complex. They're also extremely expensive, and they're in limited supply. Um, in other words, they, the companies just can't manufacture them as fast as, as people are asking for them. So it, it's not a solution for everybody, and, and it's still a bit unclear how change, practice will change. But I think that the trend that's moving forward, at, and, and we're seeing with new research at ASH, is that um, we may be considering these sooner than we have been in the past. Um, and then finally, uh, the, uh, the bispecific antibodies. In the past, just over a year, we've had three different uh, products approved. And uh, so the hard part now is to know, well, which is best and which should we try first or who should get one versus the other. And when we get new drugs, um, especially in myeloma, where we've, we've had so many new drugs come along, um, it takes us a long time to figure that out, even after the drug is available. If that's still happening, um, the study that caught my eye with um, uh, at this year's meeting is there was a comparison between Tecvaly, which is the first bispecific antibody that came out, um, uh, against a newer one called Elranatumab. Um, uh, um, uh, I'm not even sure the brand name of that. Uh, and and the, the, the study seemed to favor the newer one. Uh, they're very similar, but the newer one seemed to do a little better. So, you know, a lot of us started using the first one because it was the first available. Then we got comfortable with that, and we've stuck with it over the past year. And now we're st I'm starting to think, well, maybe we should, you know, uh, uh, not not limit ourselves to just one product and uh, you know and, and try to really follow the research so um, I think that's my time uh, there's a, there's a number of other smaller things uh, that came out we're always you know there's always a lot of research just trying to better understand the biology of the disease how it works and, and how it affects the immune system and um, you know how to, to choose different treatments for different patients um, uh, you know, customized me uh, or personalized medicine is is still early in myeloma, but we are st we we do you know we're starting to look at genetic data to choose treatments for 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 in particular individuals, uh, namely those with with uh, one 
genetic translocation called 1114 that we have special treatments for. Um, and there was some new research on that, but that's, that gets a, a little bit esoteric. So um, maybe rather that maybe we should uh, move into questions. I, I'm always happy to, to talk about this stuff because I find it exciting and I'm happy to answer questions that people have. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Butler. That was an outstanding presentation. Lots of wonderful information. I know that there'll be questions for you absolutely during the Q&A. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Ruben Messa. Dr. Messa is uh, President Levine Cancer Institute, Atrium Health, Wake Forest, Baptist Comprehensive Cancer Center, um, Enterprise, Senior Vice President, Atrium Health, Vice Dean for Cancer Programs, Wake Forest School of Medicine, Professor of Medicine, Wake Forest School of Medicine. And Dr. Messa will be addressing disease-specific updates on myeloproliferative neoplasms and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. Hello, I'm Ruben Messa, and I'm the president of Atrium Health Levine Cancer, as well as the executive director of the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Carolyn, thank you so much for the invitation to, to be here today. Excited to share the updates from the American Society of Hematology meeting as it relates to both myeloproliferative neoplasms as well as issues impacting you as patients in terms of quality of life. This year's meeting really was record-setting in many ways, both, both in attendance of almost 30,000, but also really as the global meeting place for the scientific updates across all the diseases of the blood, including, of course, myeloproliferative neoplasms. So let's jump in. So as we think about myeloproliferative neoplasms, there really are three main diseases that we're typically focused on, essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, and myelofibrosis. Essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera are diseases that can uh, affect people for many years and characterized by respective increases in platelets or red blood cells, respectively. At this year's meeting, first, there continues to be evolution of possible new therapies for essential thrombocythemia. Historically, we've had approval of medications such as hydroxyurea and uh, anagrelite for this condition. Many patients have used long-acting interferons and injectable medicine to both help to control the counts as well as help to impact the disease. At this year's meeting, there was data presented on long-term outcomes from individuals that had been receiving these various therapies over long periods of time, particularly younger individuals. And in younger individuals, for the first time, there seems to be fairly clear evidence that the long-acting interferons may help to delay or prevent progression of the disease from ET to myelofibrosis. This is very important, further reaffirms the need for this potential therapy. In parallel with this, there are ongoing global studies of the long-acting ropegulated interferon alpha-2b for patients with ET that are expected with interest. Additionally, there's a new medicine being developed by Medemstat that may be helpful in individuals that have failed prior therapy with ET, and phase three studies we think are going to be forthcoming. Polycythemia vera is next. Too many red blood cells can impact people with spleen symptoms as well as risk of blood clots. 
There's a variety of new therapies in development. First, earlier studies of using ruxolitinib in the frontline setting for these individuals is being investigated and some data presented at ASH, showing that that is likely beneficial, but that data needs to, uh, those clinical trials need to conclude. Second, uh, as I had mentioned, uh, benefit as it relates to trying to avoid progression in the disease with the use of interferons and more is being learned. Third, a new class of medications that try to trick the bone marrow into thinking that it doesn't need to make as many red blood cells with a medicine called resveratide that's uh, undergoing phase three clinical trial testing uh, and showing preliminarily beneficial results, helping individuals avoid phlebotomy. With all of these diseases, it's in, there's important studies being done to understand the impact on patients in terms of symptoms and quality of life, both to try to uh, measure and prove that a baseline increase in symptoms can be improved by a therapy. Second, by any therapy that we undertake, we don't have a worsening of symptoms. Now, in myelofibrosis, this tends to be the most problematic of myeloproliferative neoplasms and can progress to be life-threatening. So there's a great unmet need. This year, we have now four FDA-approved therapies for this disease, ruxolidinib, pedradinib, procrinib, and mamelodinib. With many new pieces of information regarding the most recently approved of these, mamelodinib, as it relates to improvement in anemia, decreases in need for transfusion. Decreases in need for transfusion may correlate with controlling the disease better, as well as an individual hopefully living longer with the disease. So those are really our base of therapy, those four key JAK inhibitors. Now, in parallel with this, there are numerous additional agents looking at different ways of tackling the disease that are being looked at in clinical trials. The most mature of these are two phase three clinical trials that are seeking FDA approval. The first with ruxolinum plus nevidoclax. This medication in earlier studies had showed benefit alone or in combination. In this study, they demonstrated in a trial compared to ruxolitinib alone, almost twice as likely for patients to have a reduction in the size of their spleen, which we think is a very important surrogate of benefit overall for the disease. Better symptom control, better likely long-term control of the disease. Second, uh, as it related to changes in symptoms, relatively similar in terms of the change in symptoms for the ruxolitinib alone. This was a mixed result. However, we recognize that ruxolitinib improves symptoms a fair amount as a baseline, and many more analyses are ongoing. This difference in benefit in symptom in spleen without a loss of benefit in symptoms, you know, may really make be sufficient for making the case for using this therapy. Next, there was calabresid, different mechanism of action, similar design trial. Patients who were JAK inhibitor naive, palabrexib plus rux versus ruxolidinib, and the combination arm patients were twice as likely to have a spleen response. They trended toward having an absolute improvement in symptoms. It did not reach statistical significance, but was, uh, was real uh, and most certainly at least equivalent, if not really leaning further toward that. Additionally, there was other evidence of benefit as it related to improvements in scarring or fibrosis as well as potentially anemia. 
The results of these studies are going to be looked at very closely by the FDA and others, both in terms of approval as well as how they evaluate into our treatment algorithms. So I'll leave you with this, hopefully a message of strong hope, new therapies in development, laser focus on how they impact you, your blood counts, and symptoms. I'm very hopeful for new therapies to come in 2024 and impact for MPN patients. Thank you so much, Dr. Nessa. That was an outstanding presentation. Lots of wonderful information for our participants. Very inspiring. Thank you so much. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, cancer Care is a national organization that provides a host of services for people throughout the country. We're a nonprofit organization, and we provide practical and financial assistance to people. Um, we offer co-payment assistance. Um, resource navigation. We also offer these workshops and publications. We also um, offer um, a number of online support groups, and those are accessible by visiting our website, www.cancercare.org. And also, we have a clinical trial list that you can access by contacting our staff for information about clinical trials. And um, well, that's covers a lot of what we do. And if you go to our website, you'll be able to see all the different online support groups we offer, and also all the different workshops and publications that we have. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So this is a question for Dr. Ghosh. Um, what is the connection between autoimmune diseases and lymphoma? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, so as we know, autoimmune diseases can be because of B cell disorders or T cell disorders. And there are certain autoimmune diseases which have a stronger link to B cell lymphoma. And one example of that is marginal zone lymphoma, which has been associated with several autoimmune diseases, including Sjogren's disease, and some other autoimmune diseases as well. So uh, it's mostly an association uh, uh, more than anything else. But what happens often when we are targeting B-cell lymphoma, we are targeting B-cells, which have these same antigens as the lymphoma cells, namely CD19 and CD20. And so that can have implications in the, in the treatment as well. Thank you. Um, and uh, this is a question from one of our participants. Uh, for Dr. Morrow, will tests for MRD become common? My oncologist is not recommending this test for me. Did you say MRD, Carol? MRD, a minimal residual yes. disease. Yeah. I, thought, I thought so, yes. I think it, MRD, or minimal residual disease, has become more prominent as a predictor of response to therapy for acute leukemia. It's clearly been a stronghold for prognostication or prediction of of st stability of response in ALL, uh, acute lymphoid leukemia. And when we treat AML, sometimes um, we have different gradations of response, and it really does predict long-term success, um, next steps, further treatment. Um, so, so if your doctor's not recommending such a test, of course, discuss with them. It might be a very good explanation. It might be a, a deferred or delayed um, assessment or there might be um, something else that's being done instead um, to help. Sometimes targets um, and targeted agents um, have other ways of determining uh, response. And uh, this looks like another question for you, Dr. Morrow. Um, 
Is there anything new in how indolent mantle cell lymphoma? Oh no, this would be for Dr. Ghosh. Sorry, Dr. Ghosh. Is there anything new in how indolent mantle cell lymphoma without symptoms is approved from a medical uh, standpoint? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, so, indolent mantle cell lymphoma, um, which uh, which can be uh, you know asymptomatic. Uh, as well as a low proliferation index uh, called KI67 uh, can sometimes be, uh, you know, observed or you can have active surveillance. And that's an individualized decision. There is no, uh, you know, specific randomized trial which has looked at uh, randomizing these patients to active surveillance versus early treatment, but there is a good amount of data uh, uh, you know, uh, which has been published from, uh, you know, experiences uh, showing that, uh, uh, you know, waiting to treat when symptoms arise in indolent uh, mental cell lymphoma is not detrimental. Uh, and certainly I have patients in my practice with indolent mental cell lymphoma where we've had in-depth discussions whether to start treatment or wait uh, if there is disease progression, and then start treatment. And I've been, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised, and so are some of my patients, that they've been able to wait uh, uh, and, uh, you know, initiate treatment only when uh, disease needs. But again, this is really, uh, you know, a discussion which has to be held with uh, the physician and, uh, uh, and, and the patient taking into uh, uh, symptoms and the pathology into account and the implications of either treating right now or treating later. Thank you so much. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Butler. How can I distinguish long-term side effects from recurrence? Ah, that's a dilemma that we uh, who, who treat these diseases face every day because uh, the, the symptoms can be quite similar. Um, you know, we, we have somebody who comes with uh, fatigue and maybe anemia and, and maybe other problems, and, uh, and we and if you read the side effect profiles of the medicines we use to treat the disease, they include those things as well. Um, in myeloma, we, uh, you know, we try to use measurements of the disease byproducts, the proteins that myeloma makes. Uh, for most patients, those can be accurately measured in the blood. And so if someone comes in and they're, and they're feeling poorly and um, they're monoclonal proteins are going up, that's one discussion, uh, which is concerning that the treatment is not working and that they may need be relapsing and they may need different treatment or higher doses of treatment. Whereas the same person with the same symptoms um, who has a low, you know, undetectable or very low and stable um, disease measurements, it's a totally different discussion. Then it's, well, maybe the treatment is, is the problem and maybe we need less treatment or, or a break. Um, that's not 100% reliable, but it's, it's, it, it does make myeloma easier to manage than some other diseases where we have to use imaging and we have to use a little more judgment uh, and, and guesswork to, to know what the disease is doing. But at least in myeloma, we have an objective measurement that in the vast majority of patients uh, can tell us. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Morrow, um, what would you use to treat... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, sorry. Um, is, is there any standardization for measurement and reporting for antibody tests? Um, so, Callan, that was for me, and the question was, is there any standardization for antibody tests? 
for measurement and reporting for antibody tests. I think that might have been, maybe that was related to vaccination status, um, and I can answer it on that behalf. I think sure. that, yeah, I don't think we necessarily have um, the automatic need or standardization after vaccination to check to see if you have you are generating antibodies as a response to vaccine. There have been a number of studies of different cancers helping us understand which patients may or may not have good response to vaccination. So I think in the context of getting vaccinations, if you have a blood cancer, good to ask your doctor, am I likely to respond? Is there is there a role for an antibody test, which is available in many circumstances, but may not be standardized or unautomatic and, and may not be necessary to 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 be proved that to, to be taken and and to be proven to be at a certain level to to um, to know. However, different treatment approaches in the COVID-19 active uh, epidemic were taken in patients who didn't generate antibodies, such as those patients with uh, B and T cell suppression in their blood from chemotherapy, like CLL patients and other lymphoid, lymphoid malignancy patients. So, definitely a good question. Excellent. Thank you. And now I'm just going to ask each of the speakers to provide a takeaway, starting with Dr. Morrow, um, and then Dr. Ghosh, and then Dr. Butler. Um, so, um, Dr. Morrow, if you'd like to go first, just a quick takeaway that you'd like people to take away from today's program. My takeaway would be to everyone have a wonderful holiday, but stay safe, because uh, your success is not dependent only on your treatment and your diagnostics and your relationship with your doctor, and that's also on the good things that you can do to stay healthy and stay Stay well. Um, when it comes to leukemia, the future is very bright. And always ask about targets and testing for targets and clinical trials because we're getting much more specific about the way we treat leukemia. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's a wonderful message. Thank you. Take, great takeaway. Um, and uh, Dr. Ghosh. Um, I second that. <laughs> uh, the, the, I, I would say that in lymphomas, um, you know, what is really, uh, the field is really moving into immunotherapy and targeted therapies. So uh, I would love to empower our, uh, our patients so that they can talk to uh, their doctors about bispecific antibodies and CAR T-cell therapies and uh, novel uh, chemo-free approaches uh, to, to sort of really uh, enhance the efficacy and also, you know, be aware that these treatments uh, you know, should be more widely available. And so, uh, and, and they're really moving forward from relapse refractory to the frontline setting. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Very excellent takeaway as well. And Dr. Butler. Yeah, in myeloma, we, we've made great progress and, and it continues. Um, the problem is not uh, a lack of medicines. It's it's, too, it's more medicines than we know how to use or how, how best to use. And, and so we're, we're figuring that out, but the general trend has been um, less toxic drugs and more immunotherapies. Um, we're really kind of still learning how powerful our own bodies are at protecting us uh, from, from disease, and, and we're working better with the body instead of against it. And, um, and, the, and that still is, a, is t happening really at a breathtaking pace. A great takeaway. Thank you so much, Dr. Butler, as well. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for really asking such really great questions. And although we've done this program before, it's a yearly program that we do, I have to say the questions this time were really just outstanding and, and much more thoughtful. And our speakers, of course, were 
phenomenal and they addressed your questions. But I do want to make some comments about the questions. I know there are many of you who have questions still in queue because we just don't have time to take everyone's question. So I want to make a comment about the questions. First of all, um, if you asked a question or have a question that's in queue or would like to ask another question, um, please take all of the, each of you take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. They clearly know you the best. And it's good to ask the questions of people who really know that you've learned, you've learned things today. Take it back to treating health your team. You'll probably ask your questions in a more informed way. And you'll basically keep asking your team for the questions or any questions that you have. I think that's the message you've gotten from all of our speakers today. Um, really work with your healthcare team. Um, in addition to that, um, we are approaching um, a holiday season or in a, in a holiday season for some approaching for others and more into the future for others. But nevertheless, um, we want everyone to enjoy the holidays, but also I think as the number of speakers said, please stay safe. You know, do the things that will keep you safe during the holidays. And you can even check with your healthcare team about what those things might be for you. Um, and um, also, um, in leaving the call today, I would not want anyone to feel alone in coping with a hematologic cancer, any cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. Cancer Care is here to help you. And you'll be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation in a couple of days, actually, probably early next week. And that's an evaluation of the program. But also, um, we will include a number of, uh, of resources to you. So any of the resources about Cancer Care or about other organizations that we think would be helpful to you we will provide that for you. Also, information about clinical trials. Um, and just we'll try to provide a, a list of informa information resources for you as well. So although I know it's tempting to feel alone, please know that you're now part of the community support and we're here to help you, as well as your healthcare team. They are here to help you as well. Again, I want to wish you a very fine day and very fine holiday season, um, which is going to stretch out now for quite some time. Um, and, um, and please all take good care, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.